I will never do that again. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Um, and maybe after saying that to yourself, um, I'll never do that again. Have you ever found yourself saying, how did I make the same mistake twice? How did I end up here again? Perhaps you were speeding through a certain section of town and you've been pulled over in the same location twice. No, that can't happen in this congregation. I trust you're all driving like Christians out there. Um, no. Or uh, that's subject mundane, uh, like forgetting the sugar in a baking recipe. Or uh, that subject line in the email or attaching that document for work. Uh, perhaps, uh, as I heard one pastor say, you told your child not to play in the toilet bowl. <laughs> but there you found him or her again. And, you know, coming out of the bathroom, you know, shaking off his hand saying, no, don't do that again. Or perhaps maybe a little closer to home for each of us. Uh, maybe you've found yourself struggling with the same sin. After promising yourself, promising the Lord that you wouldn't do that again. What do you do when you fail again? Let me tell you what you do when you fail again. You look to the God who never fails. When you are faithless, you look to the God who is faithful. In our passage this morning, Abraham fails again, stumbling and struggling with the same old sin of deceit. And what we find is that, that though God's people may be faithless, though they may fail again, God remains faithful faithful. This is our great comfort and hope, that our faithful God invites you to turn in your copy of Godling people like us. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Genesis chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think so far in our study in the page 14. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of what we've learned so far in our study in the course of Genesis. God has created everything and everyone for his glory. The first man and the first woman uh, rebelled against God. They sinned against God, bringing depravity, disease, decay, and death into the world. And then God revealed that he would send a son into the world to redeem mankind from sin and restore men and women to a right relationship with God. We know from the larger biblical storyline that this promised son who's going to come and redeem and rescue God's people is the Lord Jesus Christ. As the narrative of Genesis has unfolded, the focus of God's promise to bring a son have been narrowed to Abraham and his line, his offspring. God's son is going to come through one of Abraham's sons. And it's through Abraham and his offspring that all the nations of the earth will be blessed and salvation will be made available. God, he made this promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was 75 years old. God renewed that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and again in Genesis 17. In Genesis 18, God personally appeared to Abraham to reassure him that his child would come, this promised child would come through him and Sarah. And we've now come to Genesis 20. And the promised son has still not arrived the patriarch, who is nearly 100, and his princess, who is nearly 90, are still waiting. And what do they do when they're faced with a fearful circumstance? That's a lot like one they have faced before. Have they learned to place their faith in the faithful God over these last 25 years? Well, one would think that they had learned some lessons along the way. After numerous divine demonstrations of assurance that they surely would have a child... 
surely they would know that they should tell the truth and trust the Lord. Well, here in Genesis 20, they seem to stumble into that same sin that they committed when they first began their journey. It's almost as if we're back at square one. And the good news of Genesis 20 is that though God's people sometimes commit the same sins, God himself remains the same. If the covenant, if the covenant to his purposes and his promises, he will fulfill his covenant. If the covenant, if the promises depended upon us, all would be lost. But it all depends upon God. And he is our hope. He is faithful to the faithless. We're going to look at Genesis 20 in two, shex, two sections under two headings. In Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, we see that God protects his people. And then, in Genesis 20, verses 8 to 18, we see that God preserves his promises. You can find a fuller outline, I believe, in the bulletin provided. God protects his people and preserves his promises. In short, we see Abraham's faith fail again, but that God remained faithful again. When your faith fails, God remains faithful. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence. When your faith fails, God remains faithful. Let's begin by considering the first point. God protects his people. And as we do, follow along as I read Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said, Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech, dead man, because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, would, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Well, in these verses, we see Abraham and Sarah traveling and tripping over the truth once again. But thankfully, God intervenes to protect Sarah from the consequences of Abraham's failure of faith, his deceit, her deceit, and of Abimelech's taking a woman into his household. In verse 1, we see that Abraham and Sarah, they're on the road again. And this language, it actually parallels the language of Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. In Genesis 12, the land had been devastated by a famine. And that prompted Abraham to sojourn to Egypt. Most recently, the land near Abraham had been devastated by God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And perhaps this prompts Abraham to get on the road again. This time, instead of going down to Egypt... He goes to the land of the Philistines. I wonder if you remember what happened in Egypt. Uh, just in case you don't, go ahead and turn back in your Bible. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. That's, I think, found on page 9 of the Bible's provided. Either way, it's found just a couple of pages back. I want you to follow along as I read verses 10 to 20. And remember that this comes right on the heels of God promising Abraham offspring. He's going to bless him. And he's going to provide for him. And then he goes to Egypt. And this is what we find. Verse 10. 
Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram, that was his name back then. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land when he was about to enter Egypt. Beautiful in appearance. And when the Egeri, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes, when the prince of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I wonder, does this look familiar to you? Uh, this, as I said, came immediately on the heels of God making that great promise that he's going to give Abram and Sarai a child. And yet, Abram endangers that promise from God by sending Sarai, really, into Pharaoh's house. Uh, here, we see, of course, he made this poor decision. He uses deceit, he endangers his wife, and yet the Lord, he faithfully delivers Abram and Sarai from Egypt. God protected Abraham and Sarah before. And in Genesis 20, we're seeing that God will protect his people again. Go ahead and turn back to Genesis 20. And take a look there at verse 2. You look at verse 2, <clears throat> you see that Abraham, he's being confronted with the same situation. He's in a foreign land among a people he doesn't know. He doesn't know their customs. He's faced with a powerful ruler who's eyeing his wife. And sadly, he commits the same sin. Abraham, he tells a half-truth. And so he tells King Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. She's his half-sister, actually, as we'll learn a little later on in our text in verse 12. But the reality is she's been more than his sister for many years now. Now, there are two things we need to bear in mind about this uh, deceit that Abraham is committing here. First, Abraham, in marrying his half-sister, uh, this Sarah, took place before the giving of the law at Sinai. Uh, that practice and possibility would soon be ruled out of bounds for the people of Israel, and for good reason. Second, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth, as J.I. Packer once said. There's no way around it. Abram lied. He doubled down on deceit. He lied to the Egyptians, and now he's lying to the Philistines. Uncertain situations can tempt us, can't they? Uh, they can tempt us to seek safety and security by any means. Now, think about how safety is an idol for Abraham here. He sins in order to keep and protect himself safe. Uncertainty and natural fear are no excuse for sin. Deceit is dangerous. Lies can never secure safety or protection. They do not accomplish the Lord's will or achieve what Abraham wants. Do not be deceived by deceit. Do not trust a lie to keep you safe. Trust the Lord. 
Beloved, here is a word of biblical instruction that a wily Texan once gave me. Tell the truth and trust the Lord. Tell the truth and trust the Lord. Now, liberal scholars will uh, want to think of creative ways to think about this passage. They have a difficult time thinking that Abraham could possibly have committed the same sin twice. So they come up with this idea that I think is crazy, uh, that this is a retelling of the same story, uh, just for different purposes. And do you know what my response to that is? Do, do you know the human heart? <laughs> um, have you ever pastored anyone? I mean, have you ever looked in the mirror or looked back on your life? Sadly, we all commit the same sins. We wish it weren't true, but we do. Uh, you would like to think that you don't have to learn the same lessons about faith over and over again, but you do. When faced with a similar situation or temptation that you've been faced with before, you would like to think that your faith would be strong enough to defeat temptation the next time. But how many times have you found yourself defeated? How many times have you thought, I'm going to conquer lust or anger or anxiety or alcohol the next time? But when that temptation or situation rears its head, you stumble again. Here we learn it. Perhaps to teach us to travel from our heads to our hearts. Abraham might have got the lesson of telling the truth and trusting the Lord into his head after the first time. But did it travel down into his heart? From his heart, did it come out into his habits? Sometimes our confessions, what we say we believe, don't match our conduct. And perhaps part of the reason that we're confronted with the same situations and the temptations is not just to learn God's truth, but to learn to live God's truth. Our great God is after total transformation in our lives. And that takes time. Uh, that takes learning the same lessons over and over again. It takes learning that He is faithful. I can trust Him. Here I am facing this difficult situation again. I'm fearful and I'm afraid and I'm concerned. What I need to remember is that He is faithful and I can trust Him. Now notice at the end of verse 2 that Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. That was the same language of the Egyptians. But we've heard this even before, earlier in the book of Genesis. We saw it in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh, yes. But we saw deception followed by taking, actually, in Genesis 3. The serpent deceived Eve, and she took the fruit. Oh, this language of sin. And that's in Genesis chapter 3. Abimelech's taking of Sarah is cast in the language of sin. And that's why the Lord, his intervention in verse 3 is so strong and so severe. Do you see what God says to Abimelech there? In his dream, he says, behold, you are a dead man because of this woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Here is the Lord actively opposing adultery. The Lord is opposed to adultery. Here he is, actively intervening to protect Sarah. He's intervening to protect his purpose of bringing the promised child through Abraham and Sarah. Not Abimelech and Sarah. Abraham is not in that house protecting Sarah at night. God is. Abraham is comfortably sleeping somewhere else, but God is confronting Abimelech and protecting Sarah. The hero of the Bible is always God, and that's what we're seeing here. He's the one who brings safety and security and rescue for his people. And I find verses 4 and 5 amazing. Not only is God intervening into Abimelech's dreams, but Abimelech is talking back to him. He's talking back to the Lord there in verses 4 and 5. He proclaims his innocence. He basically says, this is not my fault. I mean, look, both of them pointed Abraham lie, brother and sister. And with that revelation, we're learning that not only did Abraham lie, but Sarah lied too. 
And here the Lord is graciously intervening to protect Sarah from her consequences of her own deceit as well. This conversation between Abimelech and the Lord I don't think is normal or natural. This is unusual. This is a supernatural experience. God divinely, dramatically, and personally intervenes in extraordinary ways to protect his people and his promises. This is a unique, redemptive, historical occasion. God's covenant purposes and promises, his plans for the salvation of the world are on the line with Sarah in that house. Those are the kinds of stakes at play when God shows up like this. And if you want to know how seriously God takes it, I mean, we saw him already say you're a dead man there earlier. But look at verses 6 and 7, his response to Abimelech's promise or proclamation of innocence. He recognizes that Abimelech's intentions were innocent, but it was God who actually kept him innocent. I mean, I wonder if this makes you shudder or it makes you feel safe that God knows the integrity of your heart. He, he, he says to Abimelech, I, I know what's going on in your heart. You see that in verse 6? I I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. Did you know that God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart? He can see deep into the recesses of your heart. And he can tell you if there is integrity or iniquity. Uh, Abimelech uh, might have done this, this, taking her into his house in integrity, or so he thought. But how many other things did he pursue in iniquity? If you know your heart, then you know there is definitely iniquity there. Right? There, there might be the occasional instance in your life where you operate in integrity. There might be occasions in which you do this or that with integrity. But there are probably equally times with, within your heart that it operates in iniquity. Does it make, make you feel safe? Or does it make you shudder that the Lord knows what is in your heart? Yahweh is telling Abimelech that he recognizes that in, in this matter, that his intentions were innocent but that it was God's divine intervention that kept Abimelech innocent. Left to himself, Abimelech would have sinned. I mean, look at the middle of verse 6. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. The Lord stood in the way. And notice there in verse 6 that adultery is not just a sin against the Lord, sin against Sarah, but first and foremost, it is a sin against the Lord. It was I who kept you from sinning, what, against, against me. So when you look with lustful intent in your heart at someone who is not your spouse, you are sinning chiefly, first and foremost, against the Lord. This is totally different from what our culture says. Our culture is never willing to say that adultery is a sin against the Lord. Maybe the world is willing to say that it's an offense against an innocent spouse or common decency. But even that ground is fading fast. Since the world says that the self is sovereign, that the self is always right, right, you do you. Since the heart wants what it wants, then you live your truth and follow your heart's desires and your body's desires. What you want is not wrong, it's always right. That's what the world says. But it's not what our God says. Given our sinful flesh, following our heart's desires and our body's desires is almost always wrong. The self, the human self, that is, is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And he says that any form of sexual expression or desire outside of God's good design is immoral, sinful, and offensive to him. It's sinning against him. That's why the only right confession, then, is a confession like David's. 
right? In Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, when he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. And then he says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, beloved, think about God's intervention and protection in this moment. Praise God for protecting Sarah, even from her own deceit. Praise God for holding back Abimelech. Give thanks when the Lord protects you. Give thanks when the Lord holds you back from sinning against him. And in fact, make the middle of verse 6 a prayer in your life. Pray something like, Lord, keep me from sinning against you. Hold me back from sin. Do not let me give in to the wicked impulses and the desires of my flesh. Align my heart with against you. Make verse 6 to your will. Lord, keep me from sinning against you. Make verse 6 a prayer in your life. In verse 7, the Lord prompts Abimelech to do the right thing. I mean, verse 3 already held an implicit prompt. But when the Lord says, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, that ought to immediately prompt you to return uh, that man's wife. and Say, forgive me, let me just give her back to her husband right away. But that wasn't Abimelech's immediate response, wasn't it? It was, I'm innocent, I've done no wrong. I almost wonder if he wanted to hold on to Sarah. But the Lord wants more than a response. He wants a return of Sarah to her husband. And he ensures it by warning Abimelech one more time there in verse 7. He told him toward the end of the verse, But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. I wonder if those words, you shall surely die, if they ring in your ears. Again, this is reminding us what happened in the Garden of Eden. When the Lord spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden, he told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God puts the matter to Abimelech here in no uncertain terms. Disobedience will bring death. The wages of sinning against the Lord will bring death. But in verse 7, another possibility is held out, isn't it? The possibility of life and blessing. God informs Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet. He was a servant and a mouthpiece, a spoke God, and asked God to do things as a prophet who was able to pray to God as well, to speak with God and ask God to do things for others. Abraham is a prophet and a priest in that regard. He can be a mediator. Therefore, Abraham could intercede for Abimelech. We know that Abraham is able to do this. He's just done it in the previous chapters. He did it in Genesis chapter 18. When he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, especially for Lot to be rescued. And we saw that the Lord answered his prayer by rescuing Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah there in Genesis 19. So Abraham, he can pray for Abimelech and see him rescued from this judgment of the Lord that's coming down upon him. He can do the same. And this is a truth that we need to bury deep in our bones. We need someone to intercede for us. We are destined for death, having sinned against the Lord. And we need someone to pray for us, to intercede for us, so that we might escape God's judgment. It's a lesson that Moses has been driving home the last three chapters. But this, Abraham's mediation, his praying, points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and his intercession for sinners like us. Jesus can pray for us, just as Abraham prayed for um, 
Lot's temporal rescue from judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He could pray for sinners. Temporal rescue from judgment upon him and his household. But Jesus' intercession for sinners like us spares sinners from eternal death. Friend, this is what you need. Someone to plead for you. Someone who is appointed by God and acceptable to God. That's what Abraham was. Abimelech didn't get to a point who would pray for him. He didn't get to choose his priest. His priest was appointed for him. Abimelech didn't get to appoint his mediator. Abraham was appointed for him. God tells us who he appoints and who he accepts. God appointed and accepted Abraham because he made Abraham the covenant head, the source of blessing. And this is even more true of the Lord Jesus Christ. God appointed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the final prophet, priest, and king who pays for the sins of his people in his death and who prays for his people in his ascended glory. Jesus is the head of the new covenant. And God the Father has appointed him to come and to do his will. He appointed his son to live, to love, to lay down his life for his sheep on the cross. And to take it up again in his resurrection from the dead. It's gospel in John chapter 10, first cross. This is what we've been learning in Bible study on Wednesday nights in our study of John's gospel. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. We looked at these verses this past week. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus referring to his death and resurrection. He goes on to say, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, Jesus was appointed to go and to die in the place of sinners. Jesus fulfills the very charge that God the Father gave to him. In the book of Hebrews, it opens by telling us that in these latter days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And as the book unfolds, we learn that Jesus is the superior prophet and priest. And the writer of the Hebrews confirms that Jesus, God's son, is the appointed and accepted one, in and through whom we might find salvation. So in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, tells us that Jesus did not appoint himself, but that he was appointed by God the Father. And then the writer goes on to say in verses 7 and 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Although he heard because of his reverence. So Jesus was heard by God the Father. The writer goes on. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Friend, just as Abraham could save Abimelech from death, so Jesus can save you from eternal death. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the grave, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. And just as God charged Abimelech to go to Abraham, say, ask him to pray for you, so God now tells us to go to Jesus and live. Go to Jesus and seek him. Make him your mediator, your intercessor, the one who offers his life for you and pleads his blood for you. Come and trust in him. Friend, turn from your sin. And come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith today. Trust him like Abimelech was about to trust Abraham. Trust him with your whole life. God, he has protected Sarah by preventing Abimelech from touching her. And God has protected Sarah by provoking Abimelech in his sleep, prodding him to do the right thing. Though God's people have been faithless, he has remained faithful to protect his people. And the latter half of the chapter teaches us 
that he will preserve his promises. This is our second point. God preserves his promises. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 20, verses 8 to 18. Genesis chapter 20, verses 8 to 18. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord, Yahweh, had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Is it not amazing that Abimelech deals with the problem right away? Right? In verse 8, we're told that he rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. How often do we delay when we are confronted with sin? You should learn from Abimelech here. We should all learn from Abimelech here. When God demonstrates to you the danger of your sin, do not delay. Deal with it right away. Abimelech is not concerned to put a good spin on God's visitation in his dream. He's not concerned about sweeping the matter under the rug. Astonishingly, he calls establishing the narrative so that everybody knows he's perfectly innocent. Astonishingly, he calls all of his servants. He is his taking this man's wife had an impact on all of them. Remember verse 4, Abimelech recognized in God's threat was not only the danger of him dying, but that the Lord would kill all of his people too. And remember verse 7, where the Lord made this plain, where he said, But if you do not return, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. As the representative head of his people, his sin had consequences for those under his rule. As goes the king, so goes his house and his nation. And Abimelech, he does not hide any of this from his servants, from any of them. He calls all and he tells all. Imagine how embarrassing that might have been for him. How often are we ready to hide our sins from others, even from those who have been impacted by our sin? How often are we ready to raise our hand and say, it was me, I, I sinned, I brought this trouble on us. Here is a true sign of repentance and grace at work in the heart. A readiness to turn from sin and to tell the truth about it too. A recognition that God is to be feared more than man. You can only confess your sin to others with total honesty if you care more about God's opinion than man's opinion. 
You can only confess your sin to others when you are convinced of God's forgiveness, certain of it, assured of it, and that his forgiveness is enough. Though all might forsake you, and though all might refuse to forgive you, you're willing to confess it because you know that God does. He forgives you. And that what he promises, what he offers in his son is enough. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 reminds us that whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses it and forsakes them will obtain mercy. For Abimelech there was no concealing. There was only confessing. He communicates to his servants what will happen if Sarah is not returned to Abraham. That must be what took place there. Given the response of the men there in verse 8, they were very much afraid. Abimelech kind of puts the fear of God in the people of Gerar. And then he turns to appeal to and address Abraham. And Abimelech's first question in verse 9 is startling. What have you done to us? Pharaoh asked the same question of Abraham after her sin in the Garden of Eden. The question, what have you done, was also the Lord's question to Eve after her sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 13. After she had taken what she ought not to have taken. Abimelech, he doesn't let Abraham off the hook with a rhetorical question. He actually wants to know what prompted Abraham to do these things to him and his kingdom. And Abraham's answer to Abimelech in verses 11 to 13 is pitiful. Abraham acted on an assumption. He thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. Abraham thought that they were just a bunch of pagan reprobates. But they might have had a bit more fear of God than Abraham realized. At least that's how it seems to be playing out here. Abraham is also deflecting, just like Adam did. When he was confronted with his sin, Adam blamed Eve. Now Abraham is blaming the king and his kingdom. But Abraham cannot blame his sin on another. He cannot blame Abimelech for his bald lie. This kind of deflection is so common in humanity. It's common. It's too common among us. It's common among adults. It's common among children. Uh, Children, when your parents lovingly ask you, what have you done... They are not asking what you or took your toy or called you a name. They're, they're not asking if your brother or sister kicked you or hit you or took your toy or called you a name. They're asking what you have done. They mean that question. And the answer to the, what you have done, uh, he did this or she did that. The answer to the question of what you have done needs to begin with I. I have sinned in this way. I have wronged my brother or sister in this way. I have done this. And then confess your sin if you have. And please recognize, children, please recognize with that question, what have you done? That is an invitation, a gracious invitation from God and from your parents to confess your sin and to find mercy, as Proverbs 28 verse said. And you will find mercy from God. You will find forgiveness from God, as well as from your parents, and I trust in time, from your siblings, if you've sinned against them. Don't deflect. Deal plainly and honestly. Abraham, he deflected his sin, and then he justified his sin. Or at least he tried to justify his sin. You see that in verse 12? He tells Abimelech of the intricacies of his relationship with Sarah. There's a sense in which it's true. She is his half-sister. But as we thought about, that's only a half-truth. The whole truth comes out of the end there with his words, and she became my wife. Yes, Abraham, that is the material point. She is your wife. It doesn't matter if you two agreed to deny your relationship wherever you went. 
It doesn't matter if that's what your policy was. That's what he's saying there in verse 13. This was our mode of operation, our policy and practice, whatever we're doing, and actually perfectly keeping up, but that doesn't make it right. The history of lying and actually perfectly keeping up the lie doesn't make the lie right. It doesn't justify the lie. Beloved, simply because you have sinned before, and perhaps in God's great patience, you haven't suffered harm, material harm from it, you had not been caught, just because that doesn't take place, it doesn't mean it's okay for you to sin. Or that you're not actually suffering spiritual harm from your sin. You are. One of the most dangerous places to be is in the continuing cycle of sin and not being caught. And from kind of an earthly perspective, you think you're getting away from it. But the Lord knows the heart. He sees all and this kind of attempt to justify or deflect from Abraham. And let us also be warned by Abraham's leadership here. It is manipulative. It's not manly at all. Abraham basically says to Sarah, look, whenever we get to a new town, I want you to show your love for me by lying. That's manipulative. It's not manly. You can never show your love by lying. Love does not lie. Love rejoices in the truth. Abraham is depending upon Sarah's deceit to keep him safe. We can never depend upon the devil's weapons for safety. It is not manly to hide behind a lie to save your skin while your bride is endangered. That is selfish and self-centered. Sarah exposes herself to total danger while I, Abraham hides behind the lie. This is cowardly. Men should always be the shield. They should never shield themselves with their wife or their children. Men, it is never your job to defend yourself by exposing your wife to harm. Be on guard against this self-centeredness and this self-preservation uh, who, who are yet to be missed here. Uh, young men, uh, men who are not married, men uh, who, who are yet to be married, this is why you must root out selfishness in your life. This is why it's so dangerous to you and to the wife and to the children. The Lord may be pleased to place in your care someday if he has not already. If you allow selfishness to have a home in your heart, the habit of feeding that may one day tempt you to expose your wife to danger. And don't say it will never happen to you. It happened to Abraham twice. It even happened to Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis 26. We're going to see that in a few chapters. He too tried to pass off his wife as his sister. Don't think that it can happen. It can't happen to you. We are told these stories in the Bible in part because this is what men, what husbands will be tempted to do. Don't deny your sin. Don't justify your sin. And don't blame God for your sin. The words which open verse 13 come dangerously close to blaming God, if not actually blaming God. Abraham says, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Now, that phrase can also be translated when the gods caused me, like if he's lost his faith. I don't have wondered if Abraham is speaking like a pagan, like if he's lost his faith. I don't think that's the case. My sense is that Abraham is kind of accommodating his speech to a, a Gentile pagan king to help him understand his thinking, that God caused you to wander. And is even that the truth, Abraham? I mean, I think he's casting shade on God's wisdom, his goodness, his love, his leadership. 
he's struggling with happily to cause you to wander God's wise and fatherly disposal. God did not cause you to wander, Abraham. He caused you out of paganism and idolatry in his grace to give you a land and a, as numerous as the stars. He, he called you out of the land of pagans. He promised you progeny as numerous as the stars in the sky. He declared that you would be a blessing to the nations and that your offspring would receive the promised land. Abraham, all your wandering has been watched over by a loving heavenly father who's worthy of your faith. The people of Israel reading this story hearing it, they might have been able to identify with Abram's statement here. They might have been tempted to view their point in it all. God has a point in it all. He was preparing them to enter and receive the promised land by faith. They had failed once, right? The people of Israel, the Lord told them to go into the land, and they said, no, we're not going to do it. And yet, how does the Pentateuch end? It ends with them right there on the edge of the promised land. What would they do the second time? Would they act like that previous generation and sin against the Lord? Or would they go in trusting Him? All of that wandering was for the purpose of preparing them to go in in faith, trusting the Lord. You know, Christian, you might be tempted to think the same thing. You might feel as though God is causing you to wander on earth. That your life has no real direction. But the truth is that He is teaching you to march to heaven. He is teaching you to live righteously in situations that tempt you so that your heart is at home with His righteousness so that when you get to that perfectly righteous place, that perfectly holy place in heaven, you'll be happy there. You might encounter similar situations and temptations over and over again. He is preparing you to receive an eternal weight of glory. That's what God is doing in the midst of all of it. Home. And he is, he is part of preserving his promise to you. He said you will make it home. And he is keeping and protecting that promise to you all throughout your life. You and I might not be able to connect all of the dots and see all of his purposes and all of his promises and how they fit together. But he does. And our hearts can rest in his sovereignty and wisdom and love. God, he had weighed Abraham down with blessing after he stumbled in Egypt and he weighs Abraham down with blessing once more after he stumbled here in Gerar. Just like the Egyptians did, Abimelech gives Abraham sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. He also gave Abraham a choice of land. This not only parallels what happened in Genesis 12, but it would parallel what would actually happen in the history of the nation of Israel. Remember, this is a, a people who had gone into the house of Egypt. And what did God do? God rescued them out of that house, enriching them with the wealth of that nation, and then giving them a land. And it would happen again. Their sin would drive them into the house of Babylon. And what would God do? God would rescue them out of Babylon, that captivity and exile, and he would enrich them with the wealth of that nation. Yes, what's happening here pictures what God is about to do in the history of the people, to a people who, totally, who are totally undeserving of his grace, both Israel and protection. And this is deserved. After having questioned God's goodness and sovereignty and love and protection. And this is how God repays Abimelech? Uh, repays Abraham through Abimelech? At one writer put it, as one writer put it, say, that's it, I've had it with you. I'm going to find someone else to fulfill my promises through. You've had your chance and you blew it. No, instead God shows him grace and weighs him down with blessing. It's totally undeserved. 
And how often has God dealt so graciously with you following your failures of faith? When you're tempted to wander into, wander into faithlessness, remember God's faithfulness time after time in the face of your sin. Beloved, we have a very good God. We should not go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means. And still, we should recognize that he is so very kind to us when our faith fails. As one faithful Christian wisely said, when faith doesn't show up, God does. Praise God. How kind of our God. And what is crucial to note here toward the end of this passage, that's why he pays this. Like he determines to make a public show of Sarah's chastity. That's why he pays the thousand pieces of silver to Abraham in verse 16. I love how he says, your brother. I, I, I must, I just name. Uh, this is, imp- I'm going to give this to your brother, right, uh, to vindicate Sarah's good name. Uh, this is important. This act is actually important for several reasons. One, to tell the truth about Sarah's purity. But also, secondly, to clearly communicate that the promised son, Isaac, did not come from Abimelech, but from Abraham. After all, isn't that what's communicated there in verses 17 and 18? Just like God had plagued the house of Pharaoh in Genesis 12, 17, so he plagued Abimelech and all the wombs of his house. God knows how to protect and preserve his promises. No child could have come from Abimelech while Sarah was in his house. The Lord made sure of it. In order to reverse that judgment, Abraham had to pray for Abimelech, and God had to heal him and all his household. And in this way, Abraham is a blessing to the nations and the nations that have blessed him. Through it all, God was preserving his promise that the child would come from Abraham and Sarah, not Sarah and Abimelech. Just as Hagar, right, was denied the possibility of bringing the promised child through Abraham, so Abimelech was denied the possibility of bringing the promised child through Sarah. And the chapter ends by reminding us that God closes and opens wombs. God is sovereign over the sending of the Son. This is important to remember because Abraham and Sarah are still waiting for God to fulfill that promise to them. To send Isaac. The closing and the opening of the wombs in Gerar would have been a tangible reminder to Abraham and Sarah that God can do what he said. He can open and close wombs. The Lord was saying to them, I can open your womb, Sarah, and I can give life from Abraham. I can send a son. I have preserved my promises, and I'm going to bring them to pass in your life. Trust me. They both failed to trust him in Gerar, but they had every reason to trust him going forward. And Christian, so do you. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In Abraham and Sarah's history, it seemed like the promised son would never come. They faced similar situations and temptations while they waited for God to bring his promises to pass. They failed, and they failed again. But God remained faithful. If you look at the opening uh, verses of uh, Genesis 21, just the next chapter over, you'll see the opening words, the Lord visited Sarah. For Abraham and Sarah, it might have seemed like God had been silent year after year, but he was getting everything ready for the arrival of their son. That included strengthening their faith. In the history of the people of Israel, it seemed like the promised son of Messiah would never come. The people of Israel faced similar situations and temptations while they waited for God to bring about his promises. They failed again in the opening words of God remained faithful. Between the last words of the Old Testament and the opening words of the New Testament, God had been silent. Silent, but still at work. He was getting everything ready 
for the arrival of his son. Then the Lord visited Mary. And in Jesus Christ, the Lord visited Israel and the world. In your history, it might seem like the promised son will never come again. Maybe you are weary with waiting for Jesus to come back. And you're thinking to yourself, do I have to face the same situation, the same temptations, the same trials again and again while you wait about for God to bring his promises? You might fail and fail again, but beloved, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness to Abraham. Remember God's faithfulness to Israel. Remember God's faithfulness to you. He is preserving and protecting your soul so that he might be faithful to his promise to bring you all the way home. Though he's faithful, he will surely do it. Be assured of this. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He'll bring you all the way home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know how often our faith is so weak, how we are so weak, and how we are so tempted. Father, we pray and ask that you would strengthen us this day, that you would strengthen our faith. Father, we honestly fear failing again. But Father, remind us more of fearing failing again. Remind us that you are with us. Remind us and assure us of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us that you will carry us safely home. Give us faith to walk, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.